0: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, it's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folder, I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, I work on a farm, and we're here to explore some of the new applications of biotechnology in the area of treating some of the world's most insidious diseases. We've talked about this before on the podcast. It seems like almost every week there's a big breakthrough. Breakthroughs are happening all the time at the level of DNA, they're happening at the level of RNA. The COVID vaccine is a great example. But in the cell, the real shakers and movers are not DNA and RNA, but they're the final products from the codes they carry within the proteins. And proteins make up the enzymes, the structural elements of the cell that are actually doing the work. But the proteins themselves are also highly regulated in most cases or many cases. And misregulation of a protein can sometimes lead to human disease, the number of cancers we can blame on proteins that are present at the wrong time or that should have been turned over but weren't. And we'll talk about that today. So, today we're going to talk about new therapies that are targeting proteins for turnover, turning over something that is around at the wrong time, or maybe something that, if it's absent, makes a disease less penetrant. We're speaking with Dr. John Houston. He's the CEO of our Venice, they're in New Haven, Connecticut. So, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Houston. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, this is wonderful. I thought when I got the uh, inquiry about this particular project, I was really excited because we don't talk a lot about proteolytic tagging and degradation, yet it's something I teach. It's something I've watched since the 19, late 1980s, and that field just kind of emerged. And so this is a really cool topic to talk about. So let's start with this process of regulated proteolysis. Why are proteins turned over? Why does a cell make something that it eventually wants to discard?
1: A great question. And um, the study of proteolysis um, in a detailed fashion goes way back into the 60s and 70s. And eventually there was a Nobel Nobel Prize given out in 2004 for three of the scientists that really understood and elucidated the process of uh, protein homeostasis and that balance of protein synthesis and protein degradation, and particularly The cellular mechanisms involved in ubiquitination of a protein, uh, which ends up being the tagging of a protein and and, uh, allows it to be degraded. So it's a very fundamental process in in cell biology. And that balance of proteins being synthesized and proteins being broken down, and the balance between those two really drives a healthy cell and eventually, obviously, healthy tissues and a healthy body. And when you get disease, as you uh, very eloquently described at the beginning is where you see a dysfunction in that balance. Uh, Either there's not enough uh, degradation of dysfunction in proteins, and you have an accumulation of disease proteins, um, or you have too much degradation, you have um, lean tissue being destroyed. So this balance is an incredibly important feature for human health.
0: could you go into the details a little bit more about ubiquitination? So what is ubiquitin? And once something is ubiquitinated, which means they attach an ubiqu- ubiquitin to it, what happens to it? Where does it go and how has it changed?
1: Yeah, so this, all the studies over the last um, several decades have shown that uh, this is a very b- finely balanced system within your cell. Um, the ubiquitin uh, ligase machinery, so you have over 600 enzymes called ligases that track and look at different proteins in your cell and monitor for either the length of time they're in existence to say, you've now been in the cell for hours, that's your lifespan up, or you're, you're having a dysfunction. The ligases attach a protein called a ubiquitin to those proteins. And once you get four of those ubiquitins attached to a protein, that serves as a signal to the protein that its lifespan is up, and it gets dragged to this cellular uh, organelle called a proteasome which is basically a garbage disposal unit in your cell and all your cells have them and that that uh, dysfunctional protein is shredded down into peptides and amino acids and flushed back through into the cell in readiness for future protein synthesis so it's a very uh, it's a very tightly controlled process but wonderfully unique in terms of the, the tagging mechanism uh, where you get these four ubiquitins ubiquitins attached to the protein and it's then dragged off to the, you know, the the garbage disposal, you know.
0: No, that was very well described. And I think that I'll just throw in just to add to that, is that sometimes proteins that are misfolded or maybe, uh, you know, incorrect or whatever, they will be targeted by ubiquitination to say, hey, throw me in the garbage can and recycle me. Exactly. And so, yeah, so this is a really important process in the cell not only in the uh, maintenance of proteins and that are supposed to be there, maybe not supposed to be there, but also in recycling, you know, reusing the resources that are going into making proteins in the first place. So let me ask you about um, some examples of deleterious proteins. So when you're talking about removing the ones that are causing problems, are you looking at Uh, rogue accumulations of proteins, like there's a good example would be Lewy body dementia with synuclein, which is a protein that accumulates, which is associated with this disorder. Or are there other things that um, maybe you want to disrupt, like uh, in an androgen dependent cancer, estrogen dependent cancer, maybe being able to slow the receptor activity a little bit by having fewer of them. Is there one couple examples of either one? Yeah, there's a number, and and clearly our company Venus, has has been focused on a number of um,
1: disease-inducing proteins and finding ways to use the protein degradation system um, to to get rid of those uh, proteins. So you named a couple, but clearly there's a number of um, 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 uh, mutation-driven diseases in cancer uh, where uh, proteins become dysfunctional because of the mutations. There's aberrant signaling to the cell and you get uh, uh, uncontrolled division of the cell and leading to, to tumors. Uh, those become particular proteins that we could target for degradation uh, to make the molecules that we make that induce degradation and to get rid of those particular um, um, proteins. So those are mutated proteins. Uh, you can also get situations where there's an overproduction of a protein. And we see that actually uh, in, a, in, in prostate cancer where the androgen receptor uh, not only gets mutated, so there's a dysfunction in the signaling, but it can also be overproduced. Uh, and that leads to resistance of current therapies. Uh, protein degradation, if it's uh, used in a, a very focused fashion, can get rid of these mutated proteins and overproduced proteins. In the neuroscience setting, you mentioned uh, Lewy bodies, uh, there's also the possibility to get rid of aggregates. Protein aggregates that are being deposited in the brain, uh, be it uh, through tangles, plaque or Lewy bodies. And we believe uh, our technology, uh, the protag technology that we use at our which induces uh, protein degradation, has uh, an opportunity to get rid of those types of proteins as well.
0: Wow. Okay. So let me dig into that a little bit more because I'm a plant scientist by training. I'm a molecular biologist. And I don't know the ins and outs of some of the um, proteins associated with these plaques and tangles. But in the case of uh, Lewy body dementia, where you have synuclein aggregates, is that causal or is that just associated with the physical pathologies? Well, in, in general, in neuroscience,
1: I think um, a lot of the um, the rationale for what's causing diseases like Lewy body, Alzheimer's, et cetera, is still uh, to be elucidated completely. There's a number of Clear targets that, from a genetic basis, look as though they're clearly involved. And a lot of those have been the targets that big pharma and biotech have been chasing down. Uh, you have uh, targets like gamma secretase, tau, alpha-synuclein in, in the Parkinson's area and other areas. These are all uh, targets that we believe, if they're modulated appropriately, uh, could lead to a good clinical outcome. That still has to be proven because these are very difficult targets to drug. Uh, You have to get the compound or the antibody into the brain, into the specific region of the brain where the the proteins are, uh, to to actually show you can drug the target. And then once you're convinced you've actually drug the target in an appropriate way, then you have to run a clinical trial and a fairly lengthy one to show that there's there's an actual benefit to modulating that target. This makes
0: neuroscience one of the most difficult
1: uh, disease areas right now uh, for, for new therapies.
0: And we'll come back to that in just a moment um, about a little bit more about the neuroscience side, but you mentioned this other side where you're uh, able to attack aberrant receptors for like androgen or estrogen. And are those mutations naturally occurring and does the body naturally target those? And are you augmenting a natural process or are you actually causing a new proteolytic target to be uh, developed? That's a, that's
1: a great question. Uh, you know, the belief is, um, and some of the science shows us this, that uh, the mutations that are occurring can be um, naturally occurring. But quite a lot of the time with, with patients who have got uh, cancer, uh, it's the drug therapy that drives resistance to the drug therapy. And you get specific mutations to the active site of a particular receptor. In the case of uh, prostate cancer, uh, it can be the androgen receptor. Uh, that mutation in the binding, uh, the active binding site in the androgen receptor stops the effectiveness of current therapies from having an effect, and you get escape mechanisms, and the tumour is able to grow again. Uh, so those are, those are compound induced therapy induced um, mutations. They can also cause gene expre- over overexpression, where you get multiple forms of the receptor uh, produced. That also drives the disease as well. Uh, so. So degradation, the approach that we take, uh, tries to intervene at the stage of of really uh, hypercharging the protein degradation process, the natural process. We design molecules that recruit the ligase machinery and bring it to that aberrant protein and force it to degrade it and and do it in a catalytic fashion so it's repeatedly degraded. Uh, So we're harnessing a natural process, but really supercharging it to really degrade the protein.
0: I see now. So that makes a lot more sense. So what you're talking about is really taking this thing called a ubiquitin ligase, which is this activity that tags a protein for degradation. And what you're doing and what, uh, what appears to be being done is that you have a way to kind of, uh, give that thing a, uh, like a, like a homing, target like a like some sort of a guidance to these to these specific proteins that need to be tagged to be turned over. And so how is that done?
1: Yeah so the, the original um, foundation of our company in 2013 was uh, on the back of uh, work by uh, Professor Craig Cruz at Yale University. and he designed these molecules they call them heterobifunctional molecules eventually renamed them as protax uh, proteolysis targeting chimeras i'm not sure if that's any better but that's the name of them um, and these are these are molecules at one end of which is a ligand that recruits a specific e3 ligase specific ligase in that machinery the other end of the molecule binds to the protein that you want to degrade and there's a linker that combines these two ligands that molecule in effect creates a proximity event it brings the ligase machinery into proximity to the protein you want to degrade. And then when it gets into close proximity, ubiquitination occurs. Those four ubiquitins get slotted onto the the protein, and sure enough, it's dragged off to the proteasome and degraded. The protac, the compound, is actually released at the proteasome and goes back and does multiple iterations of that degradation process. So we really supercharge the natural process of protein degradation by
0: recruiting a ligase and bringing it into close proximity to the protein that we want to the grain. Okay, that makes more sense for me, because originally when I was reading on this, I kind of thought that the Protech uh, strategy was actually attached to the ubiquitin ligase and bringing it to its um, substrate. And what it really seems to be is just a bridge that marries the two with a little more affinity than if the the two were just together in solution or in a cellular environment. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's a highly targeted approach. Um, when you've got extreme um, overproduction of a protein, if you've got uh, significant mutations, the lagging machinery could be overwhelmed, and that's why you get tumor growth. What we're doing in this setting is really enabling a very very uh, effect of protein degradation process, by bringing the, the machinery into proximity to the protein in a repetitive fashion. Um, mm-hmm. So, And we've, we've done that with the androgen receptor, we've done that now with the estrogen receptor, um, and both uh, those programs have developed all the way through to phase two clinical trials, but we have many more programs in our oncology pipeline and our neuroscience pipeline that follow the same route. It's targeted degradation of proteins That the cell would probably naturally degrade but has been overwhelmed because of the mutations and overproduction of the protein.
0: Very good, so I understand why this would work well, but what about its role as you mentioned before, you know, the blood-brain barrier and being able to get something into the brain. Why is this approach better than other traditional pharmacological approaches?
1: Yeah, so so protax are small molecules, um, but they're larger than average small molecules, so they're more in the kind of the range of 800 to just over a thousand uh, Daltons. So they don't—they wouldn't naturally lend themselves to being blood-brain barrier penetrant. And normally, those types of molecules have to be very small uh, to go over the blood-brain barrier. Um, but we have been able to design properties into these protax uh, over several years, based on our chemistry know-how, that allows us to get protax uh, through the blood-brain barrier. So why is that important? So Some of the current therapies are a real mixture of small molecules that are attempting to get over the blood-brain barrier and get to the specific target. Um, You've got antibodies, very large molecules indeed, trying to get over the blood-brain barrier. You've got antisense oligonucleotides. You've got RNAIs. You've got a whole host of molecules like this, all attempting, all very large, all attempting to get over the blood-brain barrier and to different degrees, um, not really managing it effectively. So these... uh, potential targets that we want to modulate are probably still largely undrugged uh, or not effectively drugged. Now, we believe protax, um, we will be able to show that they get over the blood-brain barrier, they get to target the specific protein we want to degrade. And because of that unique catalytic process, we will be able to drug the target in the right brain region and truly degrade the protein. Uh, So you get more bang for your buck in a sense by getting the, the protein molecule to the target, as opposed to a small molecule inhibitor, uh, which has to sit on the target uh, all the time. Uh, or for these larger molecules that are probably never going to really go over the blood brain barrier effectively.
0: No, that's really good. I'm starting to get a handle on the technology. So maybe one more question on the technology is there are 600 and something ubiquitin E3 ligases, but probably, I don't know what, how many 35,000, 40,000 different proteins and peptides from all the alternative splicing events that can occur and all this kind of stuff. How do you know that that targeting is specific? And is it really just that, that this linker that you're putting in this protac linker that it's has specificity on both ends so that you're always marrying the correct E3 ligase to the correct substrate? Yeah,
1: a great question. So in the, in the natural cellular system, uh, we would imagine that the 600 or so E3 ligases plus all the E2 ligases plus all the E1 ligases offers an incredible amount of specificity for the cell to come up with the right combination of E3, E2, and E1 to hit the right protein at the right time. That's the cellular mechanism. What we do is we, take, we have taken uh, E3 ligases that are, that are more um, ubiquitous, uh, the broad spectrum; they're in all cells, and we have been able to show that we, by harnessing uh, any uh, particular E3 ligase, but uh, we, we've, we've used four or five in particular, but, and by dragging that ligase to a protein, it may not be the protein that normally degrades, but by bringing it into close proximity, it drops the ubiquitins onto those proteins, and they get degraded. So the specificity, the true specificity, comes from the, 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 uh, the binding ligand to the protein and there's a specific binding that occurs there. We've recruited our E3 ligase that we believe will work, and 95% of the, of the proteins we've looked at have been degraded by the ligase we recruit. And so the specificity comes from that initial ligand. And to be honest, the orientation of the protein that you want to degrade and the ligase. There's a lysine group that sits up in the protein where the ubiquitin hits, and that has to be uh, positioned in space Uh, when the the proteins come together to get that specificity as well. Um, But yeah, the E3 ligase we recruit is probably not the specific ligase that would be normally uh, used to degrade that protein. Um, We're just bringing it into close proximity proximity and it does the job.
0: Wow, that's pretty good. I never knew they were so promiscuous. I always was under the impression that they had all these uh, protein interaction domains that made them specific to the substrate but you can maybe make them promiscuous by substituting the linker for these protein-protein interaction domains.
1: Yeah, by just dragging the protein to, dragging the ligase to the protein. I see. And when it gets into that close proximity, it drops the, the, the ubiquitins onto the protein.
0: Oh, wow, this is cool. Okay, so we're yeah. speaking with Dr. John Houston. He's the CEO of Venice, and we're talking about regulated protein degradation as a means to destroy molecules which are causing human pathology. And you know what? I bet this works. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: Greetings, Talking Biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that talking biotech tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, We're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast.
0: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. John Houston. He's the CEO of Arvinus. We're talking about regulation of protein degradation as a means to control accumulation of aberrant peptides or proteins that contribute to human disease. And this is really a different approach than anything we've discussed in 315 episodes of the podcast. Um, What's happening in the pipeline? And we already talked about this problem of uh, how you match the specific E3 with the specific substrate, but you're, how is the receptor being targeted by the little linker by this bridge? Is, is it you know as a protein-protein interaction domains that you've determined ahead of time, or how, do you, how does that happen?
1: Yeah, um, the the, uh, the two main programs we have that are in the clinic right now. One is um, targeting the androgen receptor. Uh, and that's um, focused on uh, prostate cancer. And the other one is the estrogen receptor that's targeting metastatic uh, breast cancer. So for the prostate cancer uh, program, uh, we developed molecules that would recruit a uh, specific E3 ligase that we knew would, would work and works in most situations. And at the other end of the molecule, uh, we we've, we've designed a specific androgen receptor binder. And so that binds to the androgen receptor. And so it will will bind there, it will recruit the E3 ligase to the, the receptor, ubiquitins will be added to the receptor, and it gets dragged off to the proteasome and degraded. As I said before, this is done multiple times. Similarly, for the estrogen receptor, we have a highly specific estrogen receptor binder at one end of the molecule. Again, similarly, an E3 ligase is recruited on the other end of the molecule, and the same process occurs, ubiquitination and being dragged off to the proteasome. So very different from inhibition where you have an occupancy-driven event inhibitor uh, inhibitors added to a receptor. It has to sit on the receptor to block its signaling. You have to keep adding drug to make sure that that receptor signaling is stopped. With a degrader, you are actually taking the protein and degrading it so the protein disappears from the cell.
0: That's really cool. I, I like this approach a lot because it, it just makes so much sense. The What about with, uh, even though it wasn't in your website or mentioned on your website, th- we've had a guest on this podcast before talking about prion-related diseases. So like Creutzfeldt jakob disease and fatal familial and, um, insomnia, um, other disorders, bad cow disease. Are there any uh, opportunities to target prions or misfolded prions using the same kind of approach? And is anybody doing that?
1: Um, so so the, the, um, the ubiquitin system um, has to be intracellular, so, so the targeting has to occur within the cell so that the protein can be dragged off to the, uh, the proteasome. That could be a nuclear protein, a cytoplasmic protein. It can even be a membrane-bound protein that has an, a, an intracellular um, a component to it. Um, extracellular proteins, are proteins that are sitting on the receptor uh, sticking out of the cell, the proteasome system doesn't get to those because it's an intracellular mechanism. So prion transmission would not be a target, but the production potentially of a prion within a cell could be. So pathological proteins that eventually get themselves out of the cell and transmit uh, disease, you'd have to get them first of all in the cell and, and break them down. We haven't looked at prions particularly. Um, I'm not aware of other degraded companies that are currently looking at prions, but we're certainly looking at tau, and we're trying to understand the different mechanisms of tau being uh, being a pathological driver of disease, uh, certainly in Alzheimer's and other tau-driven diseases. And there is a prion-type of element related to mm-hmm. tau. There's a pathological form of tau that, when it escapes the cell, it can be transmitted to another cell and and, and continues the, uh, the, the the dysfunction in that other cell. So it almost has a prion-like uh, activity. Now, our attack, our approach there is to to try and get that tau protein in the cell and degrade it before it can actually be released and transmit to other cells.
0: Yeah, I see. So that's the tau protein, TAU. And that one, has that been implicated in terms of Alzheimer's where, again, like that kind of causal association, or is it something that just kind of happens and they're still piecing together its role in Alzheimer's?
1: Yeah, so Alzheimer's clearly is a, a very heterogeneous disease in terms of the mechanisms in play. There's a lot of genetic underpinnings. There's a number of very interesting targets have, have appeared. Um, and you have these big functional uh, aggregates that appear. Uh, you have plaques and you have tangles. And certainly tangles are associated with tau and the aggregates that come from those. And these cause the, uh, the, the, the synapses, and their cells to become very dysfunctional. Um, so yeah, there's a number of, of clear targets that many companies want to target uh, in that area. They've just been very difficult to drug uh, before the reasons we talked about earlier, getting getting compounds into the brain, getting into the right region of the brain and actually drugging them at the right time and the right site. Uh, so yeah, Alzheimer's is a very uh, tough area to, to deal with. Um, And I think it will be a multi-drug approach. It won't be one simple mechanism. There's probably going to be multiple mechanisms. But we have to start by getting drugs that work against these specific targets and then eventually getting to a point where hopefully we can combine them so you can tackle uh, complex diseases like Alzheimer's.
0: I get the feeling that the estrogen-related cancers would be similar because these are estrogen-dependent, but if you're able to remove the receptor, you could slow the growth, but probably still need other types of chemotherapy or radiation to actually eliminate the, the problem in its entirety, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, with, with breast cancer and prostate cancer, there's a whole sequence of therapies patients get, and, and thankfully, there's a lot of uh, very, very effective medicines. Um, our clinical trials that are currently running are in patients that have gone through multiple different therapies. And so they're very late stage patients They maybe have had five or six previous therapies, including chemotherapy and uh, currently um, targeted uh, uh, drug therapies. But resistance is built up, the tumors have continued to grow. And those, those, those are the patients that are in our trials where the graders uh, uh, maybe have a good chance of actually hitting the, uh, the tumors in a very different way.
0: Well, so far you have a pretty ambitious pipeline. If you go to the website, there's quite a few compounds that are in the in the works. Can you give me a sense as to uh, what other products are in the pipeline for certain indications, and what's the timeline till these may end up in clinical pro- trials, or maybe even for use in therapeutic application?
1: Yeah, so um, our two lead programs, the ARV one hundred and ten, is our uh, metastatic prostate cancer drug that's in phase two, um, um, and um, we have another uh, compound, ARV766, which is also an androgen receptor degrader. That's in early phase one. Uh, we have ARV471, which is our estrogen receptor degrader, and that's in phase two uh, in, in people with metastatic breast cancer. Those are our three main lead programs that have allowed us to, to really show proof of concept that our platform works uh, in, in really tough settings in, in, in patient populations that are fairly late stage. Beyond that, we have quite a robust oncology pipeline, uh, more of a mix of um, tougher targets, tougher to drug or, or undruggable targets, uh, targets like KRAS, uh, MIC. Uh, we also have uh, targets uh, that are like BCL6, which is for B-cell malignancies. So we have a, an array of difficulty drug targets. But targets, we believe, really drive a lot of uh, cancers in a significant way. So we're very excited about those programs that are coming up behind in oncology. We have a, a, another probably 15 to 20 programs that we haven't listed in our pipeline um, behind that. So our game plan is to, is to have a, a clinical candidate per year coming from our pipeline so that we can build a very a strong pipeline of cancer therapies and uh, neuroscience therapies behind that. And so because you have a platform, it's working, you can actually generate a, a very good pipeline over the next several years.
0: Yeah, I really do see the magic in this. And I can think of, you know, literally thousands of, of potential targets, because when you're talking about cell cycle targets, um, anything's a, so many associated with cancers and aberrant proliferation, uh, angiogenesis, there's all kinds of potential targets here that, uh, that that could benefit from this kind of a therapy. But this is in animals what about, you know, I'm a plant scientist by training and I can think of all kinds of places where ubiquitin E3 ligases had extremely prominent roles in plant biology. And, uh, you know, the COP1 protein and it's, uh, and it's, uh, association with proteasome and degradation of specific proteins plays roles in all kinds of important, uh, developmental transitions. So is there any kind of partnership happening in plant with plant scientists? And if not, can I do it? <laughs>
1: This, this is a great story. I mean, we we were talking to Bayer, uh, the German company, about a about a, a deal where um, the types of deals we'd done in the past with um, Merck and Genentech and Pfizer, where they hand us their targets, we find the graders, and eventually they get into their, their pipeline uh, and we get royalties and milestones. So, but we're really building the pipeline and helping to build the pipeline for those companies. We we're in a discussion with Bayer about that, exactly the same type of deal in, in human disease, and they asked us the question, would you be interested in talking to our AgriChem side of the business? Because they're fascinated by protein degradation. And we said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be kind of fun. We hadn't thought about doing AgriChem, but we talked to them. And they were so enthusiastic about the idea of deploying all the knowledge of ligases in plants, which, to be honest, I didn't realize how much, how much science was there and how many more ligases there are in plants compared to humans. So it's an incredibly controlled system in, in plants. Um, and, and sure enough, we, we decided this would be a really a very interesting approach. We created a joint venture between Bayer and uh, Arvinus, and that company is called EarthBio, O-E-R-T-H. Um, and they are completely focused on deploying protein degradation into the agrochem space, looking at plant health, plant disease, uh, looking at insects, looking at uh, fungi that cause disease. And that's been a fascinating new exercise for us, working with the scientists that we've now I put into that company is is down in North Carolina, and um, we've pulled in a lot of um, great um, agrichem scientists, and it's led by John Dombrowski, who's had a, a lot of uh, years in the agrichem space. So a completely different outlet for us, but showing you how how adaptable the technology is, that not just in human disease, but also in plant health and plant
0: disease. No, that's a great answer. I I just think that the whole time I'm reading about what this is, I can't help think about plants applications because plant disease, a whole center core of this is degradation of a a protein which moves from cytosol to nucleus upon and activates different systems to help in defense. So there's a lot going on in, in, in plants too that I bet this has a major uh, I mean, I just I hear about new breakthroughs and new technologies all the time, and I get excited about all of them because that's how I roll. But this one, I just really think this is where we're, where it's at, because here you're able to affect these specific proteins through an internal system that's already in place and probably with very limited toxicity to non-targets. And right, that,
1: if, yeah, because you can you can recruit a specific plant ligase, and that's what the team is looking at, all the different ligases and having the appropriate ligand for them. Um, and you're harnessing the cell's natural uh, protein degradation machinery. So it's not a genetically manipulated organism. You're not adding anything else in. Sure, you're adding in a compound to, to cause the, uh, the, to supercharge the protein degradation, uh, but you're, you're harnessing a natural cellular process.
0: Oh, very good. You know, there's actually been some reports about the peptides that come through proteolysis having an effect and uh, at least in some neurological um, uh, context. And is that maybe a potential concern that what you're, uh, you, if you enhance proteolytic degradation of a protein, that you could have enhanced production of something on the backside of the proteasome that could feed back? I mean, or is that just a bridge to cross later on?
1: I mean, we were, we we're only using a fraction, even though we're supercharging uh, protein degradation, we're only using a fraction of the proteasome um, capability and function. So all, all the other normal protein degradation processes are going on in the cell unfettered by what we're doing. Um, so there's huge capacity for protein degradation. So what uh, a protax producing or helping to produce in terms of peptides and amino acids will be minimal compared to the general flux of proteins and peptides in the cell.
0: Well, the thing I really appreciate about this particular technique is that you're essentially marrying the substrate to the thing that's going to degrade it. And how is that more of an advantage over pharmacological approaches where you're targeting a receptor with some sort of inhibitor that may, you know, at some level maybe have some sort of effect?
1: Yeah, you're you're hitting on a really unique aspect of uh, protein degraders and proteins in particular. So with inhibitors. As you know, there's um, an occupancy-driven effect. The, the inhibitor has to bind to the active site of the receptor or the enzyme and sit there to block the signaling uh, from that from that protein. So it has to be highly potent, probably picomolar uh, or better, to, to get to that, um, that effect. A, a protag doesn't have to do that. A protag doesn't have to sit on the active site. All it has to do is drag the protein into close proximity to the ligase And that can be a relatively poor binder initially. The very potent effect is when the proteins come together and you get this really potent degradation effect and that catalytic effect. So that's why it offers a really novel approach to some of these undruggable targets. A lot of the undruggable targets, which represent, what, 80% of the current proteome in the cell, a lot of those targets are undruggable because the chemists cannot Mm -hmm. make potent enough compounds to sit on those receptors. But you can make degraders that bind almost anywhere on the protein and drag it into proximity to the ligase. So it offers a whole new approach to undruggable targets and the many,
0: many uh, proteins that have been undrugged so far. So I absolutely love the approach. I, I'm sold. I think this is great. But it seems like this is something that everybody should be doing. How many companies are using this type of approach? Yeah, Great question. And,
1: and, and clearly Arvinas was the, the first mover in the space. We were founded in 2013, and we had nobody uh, around us for at least two to three years. Um, but now, when I look at the uh, the field, uh, where there must be around 40 to 50 different small biotech companies, both public and private, that are in some form of protein degradation uh, technology approach, and that's not counting all the big pharma companies that are now looking at protein degradation. and what that tells me is that Arvinus, through its technology uh, innovation, and the the drugs that we have put through into the uh, the clinic has proven that the technology works and it's ready for prime time. And there is a significant small industry in protein degradation. And the great news about that is that you're going to see a number of new therapies over the few over the next few years coming from all these different companies uh, targeting uh, all of these difficult to drug uh, disease areas.
0: That's really optimistic. I'm always excited about these uh, new approaches that can solve problems because. We have so many people who listen to these podcasts and who will write later on and say, well, I have a a family member suffering from Alzheimer's. How fast can they go? And uh, I just think that this kind of stuff, you know, it's going to move quick as it goes. And if people want to learn more about your company or about uh, the products in the pipeline, where should they look?
1: Well, our website, um, arvenis.com, uh, we have a whole host of um, papers and publications. We have the technology laid out in videos. We also, we also have great interviews with the staff who share their enthusiasm and passion for why we work in this area. Uh, so I'd encourage people to go to our website, arvenis.com.
0: Arvenis.com. Okay, well, I'll also include the address in the show notes. So, Dr. John Houston, thank you very much for joining me today. This was really great. And please promise me that as breakthroughs occur, you'll reach out and we'll do this again.
1: Absolutely. Great talking to you, Kevin.
0: And to everybody listening, thank you again for listening to another exciting episode. (laughs) They've been good lately of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, as you know, write a review on iTunes. We've got one three-star and one four-star, and I think the three-star says they gave it three stars because they didn't like how I, how I bashed UFOs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So um, please write a review and talk about how much you like it, and let's bury that thing. Uh, <laughs> write reviews wherever you consume podcast media. Send us a little love on Patreon, and we'll talk to you again next week.
2: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast.